Hi, uh, welcome to the New Voting Project. My name is Kanal, your host. And today uh, we have a very special guest joining us on the show, Amber McReynolds, a leading expert in election administration um, and, and voting policy. You are an appointed member of the United States Postal Service. Yes, that's right, folks. Your mail is partially delivered because of this person right here. Uh, and, and you serve on the Compensation and Governance Committee and, and also strategy and innovation committee, which I'm sure uh, those will be things we touch upon today in our, in our discussion. You will say founding uh, chief executive now in an advisory position at the National Vote at Home Institute, which is a nonpartisan organization that works to improve vote by mail systems. Formally, I guess you're, you're located out of the city of Denver. You were the director of elections in the city and county of Denver, Colorado. Uh, you led the implementation of ballot tracking and enhancing communications surrounding voting. I mean, the, the list just goes on of, of things you've accomplished. You all, you're also a co-author of When Women Vote um, and, and serve on the National Task Force on Election Crises uh, and the National Council of Election Integrity, as well as the MIT Election and Data Science Lab. By the way, MIT, please accept my college application. Uh, <laughs> lastly, you're, all, you're also a graduate of uh, UIUC and London School of Economics and Political Science. Uh, again, I do not do you any justice in that introduction, uh, but thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I understand you're very busy. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, and um, and I I always love doing podcasts, especially um, that are uh, the audience's younger younger people coming out of college in high school, um, because I truly believe that uh, uh, the improvements to our voting system not only today, but in the future are really gonna be led by the next generation. And I wanna do whatever I can to uh, impart what I've learned and also help support the next generation of leaders because this is this is a multi-generational uh, uh, situation. We've gotta keep keep improving our civics and our, and our civic health over time. Exactly, and by next generation of leaders, she's specifically referring to me. <laughs> humble humility uh yeah. but, but in any case, let's get into these questions um just just to begin you know start off talking about your background you know why you chose to to, to enter the voting rights space the political space now you're an appointed member of usps you're a governor there i mean it's just governor is just a great title um <laughs> you know so so what drew you to, to this voting rights atmosphere yeah, I, you know, in my undergrad, well, really my whole life, I've been interested in government politics. Um, my mom was a school teacher. Um, I grew up in a household. Um, my dad was a, a criminal defense lawyer and public defender for a while. And then he was one, he he um, became a judge more than 30 years ago now. And so, you know, just social justice, government politics, all of that has just been been of interest to me for my whole life. Um, my grandmothers both worked as election judges, and my I have a great aunt who actually was in high school with Ronald Reagan, um, wow. and, and in a tiny high school in Illinois. And uh, and so also the women in my family, my grandmothers and my great aunt, uh, paid very close attention to politics, and they, you know, come from a generation where many women. Of, in their generation and also their mothers couldn't vote. Um, and so I learned a ton from those women. I watched their example and, you know, really I think I'm where I am today because of a lot of guidance and a lot of listening to them growing up because they 
were very um, for, were very involved, very engaged, and felt it was critical for everyone to participate in the election, regardless of who you vote for. If if participation is high, our democracy will be stronger. Um, so I did my undergrad political science speech communications at University of Illinois, and then I went and did my graduate work at London School of Economics. Uh, during that time, I worked in Parliament for Tony Blair, Solicitor General, wow. um, and was a research aide there. Um, so it was it was lovely to be involved in the UK politics yeah. system and That's the parliament. That's a different system. world. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it was the perfect opportunity to study comparative politics uh, during graduate school and be in the UK in a very you know center of the universe, if you will, with regards to European politics and. And 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 um, and all of it around the UK. Um, and at the time, we also 9/11 had just happened. I was on one of the first flights leaving the country to move to England uh, when they were reopened after that. So the time I did my master's was an interesting time to be studying comparative politics, given the dynamics in the world at that point in time. Um, and then I moved back to the U.S. and uh, worked actually for. Uh, running a council that was focused on improvements in the criminal justice system, um, but realized very quickly that while it was in my realm of wanting to improve systems, that the topic of the uh, you know issues around it were not as inspiring to me as the voting process. And so I actually applied for a job with the New Voters Project. Uh, interestingly, similar to your to the title of your podcast, but it was a um, a nonprofit, nonpartisan, focused on increasing civic engagement on colleges and universities and creating civics programs with them during the 2004 presidential cycle. And I worked in Iowa, was one of the state coordinators. And that really, for me, that was the catalyst of how, frankly, difficult, confusing and bureaucratic. And I can imagine. Back all in of that. Or. Yes, during the presidential, yeah. yeah. And so everything, you know, that was really before we had online voter registration and before there were other advancements in technology. And so it just really exposed for me how much opportunity there was to innovate in the voting space. And so literally during that, I, I was traveling to Denver for trainings. The first time I stepped foot in Denver, I was like, wow, I love this city. And I started looking for jobs and actually applied for an operational manager role at the Denver Elections Division. And then I, you know, kept advancing and became deputy and then became director in 2011 and an expert and really catalyzed change and redid that organization, made it one of the best offices in the country. Yeah. We innovated, we innovated on policies and technology and all of it. And so that really is where, you know, <laughs> that's kind of the journey. And then obviously uh, today uh, left that to help everyone else around the country. Um, and then magically um, and interestingly, I, which I never expected, you know, if someone would ask me five years ago, are you going to be on the Postal Board of Governors? I would have said, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so, but the good thing is I'm the only woman. Uh, I'm the only independent elector. Um, and I'm the only person with elections experience. And as we all see, elections in the Postal Service have a lot um, of, of synergy uh, in terms of operations. And there's a significant a value in my elections background that I think I bring to the the board of governors. So yeah. that's well, the journey. Yeah, that's that's a pretty tremendous journey. I'll tell you that. It was long ago before I was even born. I mean, yeah. you were like doing things that 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 
today we're dealing with and and uh, yes. you, know, you could effectively call it a crisis uh we're in currently and i would just like to add the colorado secretary of state is probably one of the secret best secretary of states in the country at this current moment and i'm sure that's no doubt partly due to the presence you have um in, in the electoral administration in Colorado. So, so thank you. And I commend you for, for, for the, for the tremendous amount of work you've done. Um, and, and I would just like to talk about your role at, at the National Vote at Home Institute, kind of, you know, touch on what the organization does, um, the core, the core values, the, the objectives you're trying to accomplish. Um, and then, and then of course, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about youth and how we should be the center of everything because it's true. Yeah. Yeah, so the um, so I was the founding CEO of the National Vote at Home Institute. It, it's an organization focused on improving and um, expanding access to vote by mail systems, and that includes policy work, but that also includes the implementation side with helping election officials get get that design right in terms of the system. Um, so I joined, uh, it was, I was really a founding board member back in 2018. And then uh, we were looking for someone to lead the organization and the other board members kept kind of saying, why don't you come and lead the organization? And I, at the time was still the director in Denver and, you know, was really thinking, actually I was thinking about running for secretary of state at the time, uh, decided to pass on that um, because I frankly thought that I could have a bigger impact nationally. Uh, so I had left my director role in Denver, came over to run the National Vote at Home Institute. It was really just me and one other person plus the board at the time. And we built out the organization, brought in more funding. Um, and then honestly, it's interesting how timing works because who would have thought that I was building an organization for a year and a half or so ahead of what would become a crisis in 2020 with regards to the pandemic. And we were set up amazingly enough and prepared to support the nation um, from a vote by mail perspective. And we, we had to, I hired, you know, we expanded almost 500% in terms of the staff just in a few months in 2020, because it, there was such a great need. So many states needed our help. And uh, we ended up helping about 42 states, whether the jurisdiction or the state in it. Um, and you know, the most number of people ever voted by mail, uh, we were the ones kind of driving and putting out a lot of the strategies around how you could improve and, and expand it in a pandemic. Um, and so it became a critical piece of the 2020 election cycle and, and really part of the crisis management that was the pandemic. Um, and, and, you know, so we, we kind of went from a small thing to a very big thing. And then now in 2021, we were working on policy work again. Um, we've just hired, the board hired a new executive director who's coming on board or just came on board this past week. Um, and so now they're kind of contracting back, you know, so it was big or small, big, and then it's now kind of back uh, to being to being smaller and, and focused on those policy implementations. But I hope it, it continues to thrive and, and, and continue doing all this work going forward. And I continue to be an advisor um, and want to help the org, just like, like I want to help a lot of orgs uh, as they as they work on these important issues. Yeah, no, well, at least I know you're not a procrastinator because you were planning, <laughs> you, you, you had a crystal ball and you knew there'd be a pandemic. And, <laughs> and this was this was perfectly delivered um, and, and almost like a savior. 
to, to the voting system. I mean, everybody voted by mail and that was part of a controversy caused by a national administration. It was also partly why we had such an increased turnout. We had 150, 160 million people voting in an election. That's almost half the electorate in the United States. Uh, I mean, so it, it was it was crazy ridiculous. Um, and, and that's something we'll touch upon later. Is that, and you said it at the beginning of the interview, which is that if more people vote, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, you're still stimulating healthy democracy. So I find it incredibly um, weird and, and, and just terribly just, oh my God, that the one side of the aisle is refusing to accept that norm and, and actually counteracting and suppressing the, the, the act of voting. Uh, but we'll talk about that later, you know, after after we talk about a healthy democracy. Yeah, I think I think, look, my my approach my whole life um, and I and again, I have not been affiliated with either political party. I, I truly believe if we put voters first in the way that we design our policies and our processes and our technology, we will improve that voting experience. I proved it in Denver. You know, we we combined improvements in the policy realm, process improvements plus technology. It, that, that's how you improve the voting experience. I don't care how you vote. I don't care who you choose. I don't care what issues you vote on. It doesn't matter as long as you have an excellent and superb and magnificent voting experience. And that's what everyone should expect and have. Right. Um, but I do think that what right now, what, you know, we're at a at a point in time where and, and this is not new. Politicians, frankly, on both sides of the aisle, have tip, tried to tip the scale one way or another, whether, whether it's gerrymandering, which we've seen examples of it on both sides of the aisle, or it's leaving independent voters out of the primaries and both sides tend to agree on not wanting to have fully open primaries or utilizing ranked choice voting or doing some of these other innovative things. Uh, or um, or, you know, back in the day, even when the voter registration deadline was created, it was created to benefit the two political parties so they could have their walk lists and go door to door and have it for 30 days before the polling places would open to talk to all their voters. So that registration deadline is literally made up for the political parties. And so I think we have to get out of the space of let's put the put the voters first and and stop with the what do the campaigns want and what does the candidate want and what it, it, none of that matters it should be about the voter they should be center first and the priority in the process and we i think as a nation really need to get to that point and that's certainly how i've tried to lead in my life um, and i hope that that continues to be the path uh, that that we go on to improve this process right and i think that's that's an excellent process of just living uh, putting people first doesn't sound too difficult. Uh, but I, I just want to circle back to 2020, right? Mm -hmm. Crazy year, hectic. We had a once in a century pandemic, uh, top to bottom national election. I mean, um, you know, I was personally working on many local campaigns, figured national politics was a, was a little too much this time. Um, and so I just want to, I just want to ask, you know, what, what, you know, places did you see and markers did you see for improvement? You know, what's what solutions would you advocate for coming out of 2020, uh, being in this historic situation? Um, and, and how are you advocating for those things uh, at a policy level at USPS? Sure, well, I think for, so for 2020, um, and I, this was also came out of 2016. Right. 
Um, the way that we elect presidential candidates is flawed, significantly flawed. So um, thankfully, um, the, the, Demo the DNC decided to basically not allow anyone other than Iowa to use a caucus. So they moved most of the traditional caucus states to doing an actual primary. So like I helped in, um, actually helped as a consultant with um, Alaska, Wyoming, Kansas. Instead of doing caucuses, they did ranked choice voting plus mail ballots to every one of their eligible voters. And that's how they run their presidential primary. It was historic turnout. Uh, the great thing about ranked choice voting, and this is why I think it's so important for a presidential race, is when you, when you have 20 candidates in the first few states, someone can win with 10% right. of the vote because you've got so many candidates. Plus, uh, so then you have 90% of people voting against the one candidate, basically, but they win. Plus, you get in a presidential primary, people are dropping out weekly. When there's that many candidates, people are going to be dropping out. So early voting and vote by mail uh, become difficult because people are voting and they've potentially chosen someone that dropped out the next day. So ranked choice voting addresses that because you can rank your candidates. So if someone drops out, that's fine. You go to your next choice and you and you tally from there. So I truly think starting with that, I think that the presidential structure for selecting the candidates needs to be changed. It needs to be, I think, more regionalized. So it's not this sporadic weekly crazy thing all over the country. I think it needs ranked choice voting. I think it needs ex uh, to get rid of the caucus system because it doesn't serve military people, anyone who's working, single parents, parents with small kids at home. I could go on and on. People who work shifts, whatever it might be, people get left out of the caucus process, just like right. they do election day when you make it one time. Um, so I think starting there, and then I think certainly when people have more options, whether it's a ballot coming to them at home, like in California and Colorado and- Or same-day registration. Or same-day registration or early voting over a long period of time at vote centers, get rid of the traditional polling places, do vote centers so people don't show up at the wrong place. You can go to any of them. All of those advancements are critically important to giving and empowering voters with choice. Mm -hmm. and, and this old way of you've got to show up to the government assigned polling place on election day and you've got to get your name on the list 30 days prior or whatever. We don't need any of that anymore. It makes no sense and it doesn't, it's not customer focused. Right. So I think all of these reforms, they're not partisan. Like Utah is all vote by mail, just like Colorado and California are in Oregon and Washington. Um, Virginia expanded vote by mail and they selected a Republican for governor uh, last month. So, I, or this month. Um, so this is not a partisan issue. It is simply about improving the system. And we really need to take, I think, the partisan politics out. Um, and I do think the final thing I'd say is transparency of the election process, I believe is critically important. Uh, most of the American public doesn't understand how elections work. So I think we need to do more to educate folks, uh, possibly create even, and I've, I've been articulating this for a while, I think we need to start civics in first grade. This mm. civic, civics in high school is too late. It needs yeah. to be first grade. Think, that's uh, music to my ears. You know what I say on this show? Yeah. Civics is like the ABCDs. Yes. You have to start early. 
for them to start spelling sentences. I mean, you have, they have to know how to vote. Like if you ask the average high schooler, right, you know, is voting important? They're going to say, yes, of course it is. All my teachers tell me to vote and this and that. Uh, but if you ask them, how do you vote? They'll, they'll be blindsided. They'll be like, I don't know. They'll Google it. Right. And then they'll learn. Um, and, and I've encountered that personally where I live. Um, so, so trust me, I, I completely concur with the idea of starting early. Yeah. And my, I have an eight and 10 year old okay. and my ballot comes every election, local, state, whatever it is. And my, you know, one of the kids will get it out of the mailbox and they're like, mommy, when are we going to start working on your ballot? Cause we've done this since they were in first grade, right. since they were reading, they literally read the ballot with me. It's a long ballot. They'll say, mommy, what does mayor do? What does governor do? What does state rep do? I explain all this to them. It takes me three or four days to fill out my ballot with these guys. Um, but it is a civics lesson. And I and they have been voting with me since first grade. I just think yeah. we've got to engage at a younger age on on, yeah. on civics. And then I, I think all high school kids should should be required to, to serve worker. as a poll worker. Yeah, I've been a poll worker. Oh, that's awesome. I love yeah. that. Yeah. So, and and one thing that I'm just starting to recognize is that we'd have folks, voters walk in, right? I was a poll worker in 2020 primaries, pre-pandemic. We'd had voters walk in uh, and uh, they, we'd have to send them out because they came to the wrong precinct location. And I'm just starting to realize that's a terrible inconvenience because we'd basically be saying, go down the street, you know, go another one mile for you. Yeah. To um, and, and that doesn't make any sense. And, and, no. and it's, it's something I reiterate on the show all the time is that convenience and simplicity gives voters, gives people, you know, autonomy and agency, right? If you give a right. voter everything they need, uh, voting to the access, you know, voter registration, accessibility to ballot locations, ballot tracking measures for security, then they'll be more inclined to vote. But if you hinder them with restrictions, um, then, then of course, that they, they, they'll be less likely uh, to vote. And, and, and that's something I see all the time. Um, so, so, so yeah, no, I definitely agree with, with, with the policy objectives um, here. And I just want to ask, you know, what uh, we talked about ranked choice voting. Is there an ideal redesign of, of the voting system in the U.S. that you're looking to advocate for? Sorry that you cut up. So the voting system in the U.S. I, I heard that part, but I didn't hear okay. the first. Sorry. I said um, the ideal redesign of, oh, of, of the sure. U.S. voting system. Any any other solutions you think should be advocated for at the national level? Yeah. So I think those primary um, you know ideas that we had, I think, are certainly important. Uh, I also think that independent redistricting commissions are really important. California has one. Colorado, we just did our first one, and I was actually a commissioner on the independent uh, redistricting commission uh, just that just completed. So I do think that we need to address those issues because that's really how you know we should not be in a place where politicians are picking their voters it should be the voters are picking politicians on elections and ballots not the other way around so i think we have to address those core issues um i think that for primaries all primaries you know 45% of the country are now independent and rising uh millennials and gen x gen z that all of that uh, voter registration that's happened in the generations upcoming, most of them are picking, choosing to be independent. Over 60%, I think, is the average in most states for it, 
18 to 24 year olds picking their registration as unaffiliated. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a tr huge trend that's been happening over the last 10 years. And these outdated primary systems that leave people out and don't allow you to participate if you happen to be independent, I think are problematic, especially for younger generations, because we're we're all choosing to be independent. We're choosing, you know, to not need a party label next to our name to make a choice. So I think we need to re redo primaries with regards to that. Uh, I'm a big fan of ranked choice voting uh, in in use in certain types of elections where it makes sense. Alaska is going to try out a system this year where they're doing. They have a fully open primary. They're advancing the top four people to the general, and then they'll use ranked choice voting on the general election ballot to determine the winner. Uh, so I think that's an interesting um, uh, uh, you know, new model to watch, and it could be instructive for the rest of the country. Um, I think certainly more choice. So vote by mail. I'm a you know, huge fan of what Colorado, California, Utah, what we've all done. Um, I think also early voting, if people want to vote in person or need to vote in person or need to register, having a good window to do that at vote centers all the way extended through election day. Uh, in my mind, we have two types of voting. We have in-person voting and we have uh, voting at home. Mm -hmm. um, and in-person voting should not be this confusing construct of early voting at vote centers and election day at polling places and all this. It should all be one. Um, so I really do think that that's important. And then I think on registration, uh, we have lots of government systems that capture your name, your address, your date of birth, your driver's license, and Social Security. And so automating all that is really, really important, not just for making sure that people aren't left out of the process, but also for making sure addresses are up to date, that that information stays current, because that's an election security issue, but it's also an efficiency issue. If you move We've, we, you know, you might fill out a change of address at the Postal Service, you might tell the DMV, however you communicate that, we should be able to consume that automatically and move you so you don't have to fill out another piece of government paper. Um, so, so I think all of those things combined, obviously, with additional technology enhancements, investments, transparency, all those types of things, I think, will be uh, better for our future uh, here in the United States with regards to elections. Right. And what about the idea of a national holiday on an election day? I mean, I mean, it just it sounds like a really good idea. Yeah. So it sounds like a really good idea is probably the um, the best case it has in terms of being successful. So here's the issue I have with national holiday. OK, so first off, um, national holiday is only going to happen in a general election, which is once every two years. There's lots of primaries local elections, right, right, court yeah, elect, exactly. all this stuff. So we're going to only give it to people in already the highest turnout elections, and we're not going to do anything for those smaller local elections. So that's kind of point number one. Point number two, who gets the day off on a national holiday? Well, government, bankers, and some businesses, you know, but mostly people in the working class, restaurants, airports, uh, gas stations, hotels, uh, recreation, everything's still open. Target's still open. Most of these places are still open with the exception of Christmas and Thanksgiving. Right. So, um, so, you know, I think when we look at this, who is that benefit? Well, it just gives an extra day off to the people that already can take time off to vote or already do take time off to vote. Um, and then the other thing that happens uh, is that local governments run elections. So if we have a national holiday, they're going to have to pay everyone time and a half 
who touches or deals with the election process, which is public safety, technology departments in every county and city, uh, hotline numbers to call into, the election offices themselves, the poll workers, the, the burden of the cost is gonna fall on local entities that can't afford it. Um, and then the other thing, you know, what else happens on, on holidays? Well, transportation options go down because those are all mostly government employees that get the day off. So now we're gonna have less transportation options. Right. We're gonna have libraries and rec centers and the places that are normally polling places closed that are gonna have to be reopened. They're gonna, someone's gonna have to pay to staff them. All of this creates, frankly, a nightmare from a logistics and, and cost perspective. And so, and it doesn't actually help the people that are currently left out that are working multiple jobs that will be working on the holiday. Uh, and it takes kids out of school. So now parents, Either right. need to take the children to wait in line for three or four hours or find someone to do that. So I think it's a poorly thought out uh, shiny object is a good way to <laughs> to it's say a, it. It's a question I get all the time. You know, why why don't we have and I say, you know, in theory, it sounds great. Right. Who doesn't love a day off? I'd love to come home from school and just chill. But sure. it, it I don't know. It, I don't know if, like you're saying, it would have the 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 success. It would have the input and the output. I don't know if they'd match. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I think I think it's far better to expand the period of time that people have and they can make those choices. Um, the national holiday has so many downstream impacts that people just aren't really thinking through, and I don't think it actually helps the people that they think it'll help. And that's and that's the problem. I mean, the people that are not voting are not voting because they've missed a deadline. Right. They couldn't get off work on a day. They worked multiple jobs, all of that. And a national holiday doesn't really address that for them because those people are often working multiple jobs and can't afford to take, you know, time off. And if they had an extra day off, they'd go work at the other job. Yeah. Right. So it's just not helping the people that it claims to help. Yeah. Well, well, there is something that recently um, is going to help millions of Americans, uh, it, it, which is infrastructure bill. Uh, the infrastructure bill was recently passed, I think, a week ago. You know, great news uh, to hear out of out of federal legislation and just federal politics. I don't know if you follow. Well, I'm sure you follow, but I don't, from, yeah. from a very you know local and and almost separated perspective, it, it seems like there's some crazy polarization these days. Uh, but on that note, should we not follow that path and pass voting rights legislation that's currently being proposed, the Freedom to Vote Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, um, and, and, and upgrade the ways of voting? I mean, obviously, you've highlighted some very critical issues in the voting process. Why haven't we passed these these amendments or these pieces of legislation that aid and 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 can and assist in the process? Yeah, sure. So I, for sure, I think that there should be better federal standards and more clear federal standards around elections and voting. And both of the two uh, bills do exactly that. They, they're setting baselines. They're not setting ceilings. They're setting baselines. And part of the reason that this is so critical as well, um, and, and what I'll also say kind of leading up to what I'm, what I'm going to say on the particular bills is that we have a history of federal legislation around elections and voting, and it has happened repeatedly. We can go back to the 19th Amendment or the 15th Amendment, We can, but both of those clearly were amendments passed, ratified, 
Um, and then the Voting Rights Act itself was a bipartisan bill. It was bipartisan. So was the National Voter Registration Act in the 90s that set up Motor Voter. That was all bipartisan. Then we have uh, the Help America Vote Act that was passed after Florida 2000, also all bipartisan, signed by Governor, um, uh, President Bush. Um, then we have the ADA, which there are elements of, of the Help America Vote Act that include ADA uh, provisions. Then we have UACABA, both UACABA bills, UACABA and UMUVA, that deals with uniformed and overseas voting voters and their options to vote, all bipartisan, all examples of federal legislation around voting. So anyone who tries to say this is a state's issue and this and the federal government has no role is just wrong. Like there is historical precedence for it um, and we have done it in a bipartisan way repeatedly. Um, and then the second piece is, I, you know, because we've got, we don't have some of these national baselines, we've got a mix of deadlines around the country. It's confusing for everyone that votes, everyone that administers the election, everyone that reports on the election, and every entity that supports it, including the United States Postal Service. Last year, the Postal Service sent out a letter to every single state um, expressing concern about some of their deadlines around absentee ballots, the, the deadline to request it or the deadline to return it. And they said, look, you know, these don't even fall into our normal uh, processing periods of time. So if you're going to, in Ohio, a ballot, uh, you could sign up to get a mail ballot on Friday. If an election official mails that to the voter and they have to have it back by Monday, there's no way that that's even physically possible for anyone to do. And so the Postal Service rightfully was saying, hey, states, legislatures, you've got some issues here with just the mechanics and the operations. This doesn't work. And this is why a federal baseline, that's just one example, but this is why a federal baseline would help solve some of those discrepancies, differences, and frankly, help everyone in the election process uh, have more clarity around what the requirements are. Um, and, then, and then I think it also helps improve security of our elections. Um, Right now, disinformation flies and misinformation, malinformation, however you wanna, inaccurate information, however you wanna say it, it's easy to fly around the United States because nothing is the same state by state. So a voter hears something about another state and they think, oh, is that the provision in my state? And it's, so it's easy to confuse people. And so that in and of itself is an election security, a national security issue, and bad actors are exploiting that right now every single day. Yeah. Well, on to more light and, and, and refreshing topics, I guess. Well, I mean, there's, there's nothing more, you know, I, of course, I talk to my federal legislators, right? My federally elected officials, they're, they're, they're in support of it, um, these bills. But it, it's, it's impossible for us to pass anything. I mean, infrastructure by itself, um, it took, took so long to, to, to hash out. And, and really divulge what, what both parties wanted. And, and until that fades away, I can't see much progress on, on most fronts, on most uh, you know, politically incentivizing issues. So, so, but voting rights, I feel, should be at the forefront of that because like you said, it's just a baseline. 
Um, it's, a, it's a federally regulated standard. And we have plenty of those. Like you said, we have a history coming off of, of voting rights in the 60s. We've been dealing with this issue, you could say, post-Reconstruction or pre-Reconstruction, you know, Civil War time period. I mean, this is an issue that, that surrounds and almost encapsulates the United States as a whole. Um, so, so I, I find it, diff, you know, hard to believe that that this is this is just a coincidence. You know, it, it seems it seems very, um, you know, interesting. That, that's where I'll leave it. Um, but but I would just like to ask in closing uh, about about your advice um, to to my generation, uh, Gen Z. Again, I don't know where they got Gen or Z from, especially <laughs> Z. Why couldn't we have been Gen A? I mean, there's a whole rant I could go on for that. Yeah. And why didn't you get, do you get to pick? Exactly. I didn't have a choice. <laughs> I didn't vote. I didn't vote on this. It seems like it would have been far better for Gen Z to be able to vote on, on picking the name. Exactly. And I'm sure they're going to make that for every generation uh, past us. So, so that's great. Um, yeah. How do we, you know, make an impact on voting elections policy, you know, uh, I guess making sure our mail gets through. Uh, but there's also a certain, uh, you know, proportion of the population that it feels exhausted, feels alienated, doesn't have time. Maybe they're working, you know, multiple jobs, multiple streams of income are coming in, um, or they're ignorant. They just simply don't vote because of the dire polarization we see um, in our federal offices. So what is your advice to, to, to basically everybody? So it's a very open-ended question and that's on purpose. Yeah, I, oh, so, so I think first, and, and this is something certainly that I model with my children and this is our little family motto. So I'm gonna share this, um, but I think it's actually very pertinent for the, the time right now. Uh, our motto as a family is have courage and be kind. And, um, and I, you know, over my career, when I think about it, uh, those two things are, are constant. It doesn't really matter what you're doing, what you're, what you're working on, what you're focused on. Those two things, um, just having the courage to improve and be better and, and be better the next day and, and commit to, to making our world a better place. That's all part of being, you know, being courageous, um, and then being kind to each other. So, you know, I think, yes, people are going to disagree on policy. People are going to disagree on the path to achieve a certain thing. Um, but, but the thing about it is, is, is it's always better to have alternate viewpoints to build something new or build something that's going to solve problems. And, it, and the best things are built with collaboration and different ideas and diversity of ideas and diversity of thought. And so I, I don't think we should sort of, you know, I feel like right, right now there's this tribalism, everyone's listening to only what they believe or they're only choosing, like we're literally choosing, you know, if it's Fox or Owen or whatever, you're choosing a network you agree with, the other side, you know, are choosing the networks they agree with to listen to. And so like for me, I know I listen to all kinds of things, mainly because I want to hear what everyone is saying about the same thing, but also because I know I've got people in my circles that don't agree with me. And I actually want to learn more about why, what, what they think and what they're going to, um, going to do. Um, so I think we have to be honestly better listeners in a, in a, in a nice and empathetic way. I'm not suggesting that we engage with people that have demonstrated a complete detest for, 
American values and our constitution and our ability to, to vote. I think there's a category of people that, you know, are, that have clearly decided that they don't care about democracy and they don't believe in democracy. That's a problem. But I think there's this other group of people that are confused by the disinformation, confused by the talking heads they hear every day. And I think if we can kind of bring people and at least in a new generation, people that haven't voted yet, um, you know, just to talk to each other and not and not kind of put up the wall um, and um, and almost simplify how we're having the conversations. I know with my eight and 10 year old, you know, sometimes when I just talk to them about various issues of the day, whether it's world hunger or homelessness or um, health care issues like listening to my children articulate their thoughts around that is one of the most um, uh, unifying and pure things I've ever heard because they don't have a lot of judgments built up in their head around these issues yet. They're just simply articulating very clear uh, solutions and why it matters and all of that. And I feel like we almost need to get back to the simple, almost childlike approach to some of these issues because we've, you know, we need to, to a certain extent, set some of the judgment aside so that we can have a meaningful conversation again, because Washington DC is broken. Like, you know, it's great that the infrastructure bill passed, but there's a whole slew of bills that have been sitting there for months with no action, including the Postal Reform Act that has bipartisan sponsors. Like it has bipartisan sponsors. <laughs> it will help the Postal Service. Right you know, significantly into the future. And it's been sitting there just in the backlog, right? So I just, we've got to get back to functioning and and listening and um, and I think approaching each day with kindness, with courage and, and really, um, you know, trying to solve our greatest challenges. And I think the next generation is going to be far better at that than the current generation that has all the power. There's one generation that has all the power right now. One. Right. They're all in the same generation. <laughs> like, you know, and and my generation has there's very few people and uh, you know, um that are elected officials now and we're probably mostly going to get skipped because the current generation has held power for far longer than they should have. You shouldn't serve 30 or 40 or even 50 years in Congress, really? I mean, that's crazy. Um yeah. so it's it you know I think we have I think the next generation uh, can can think and approach and um, and converse on all these issues in a far different way than the current generation with power. Yeah, no, and that generation is mine, Gen Z. Again, I don't know where they got Z from. Uh, I really like to stress that, uh, but but no, I, I I completely agree. I mean, there's just a slew of things that we need to fix. Um, and, and I don't see that happening in a in a pragmatic way in, in any sense right now. Uh, and, and you know we'll we'll have discourse at this level. This is why you know the, the, I feel the podcast is extremely important because it's just a discussion. You know this is not calculus. This is a conversation um, that anybody is capable of having um, and and understanding um, and possibly objecting to or even agreeing with. Right? It has it offers that capability um, and, and that medium. Uh, so, so I feel like I'm in a great space, but that doesn't mean the problems are getting solved. So it's up to great, you know, uh, leaders like yourself to, to, to ensure that, that the next generation has the power to follow through 
um, you know, run run for office, um, yeah. you know, carry that that voting power with them, and and pass it on to their generations, much like you're doing with your kids. Um, that's that's the habitual cycle we have to start. Um, and and so on that note, is there any is there any last words you'd like to to pass? You know, words of wisdom, um, advice. Yeah, I well, I would just say you know, um, vote locally, think globally. So that's a little saying I always I always do. I mean. A lot of people, I feel like, think their vote doesn't matter, um, and their vote matters uh, in, in a lot of ways more at the local level than it does even at the national level. And so, every election matters. Like it, you know, gotta engage and gotta vote in every single election and get educated. Um, serve as a poll worker for sure. I'm a huge advocate of that. It won't take too much time. It's a great way to learn the process. Um, and then elect the election administration, uh, uh, you know, field is incredibly diverse from a skill set perspective. So there's technologists, there's GIS people, there's customer service agents, there's translators, there's project managers, executives, operational people, logistics people, communication people, which is huge now. So there are all kinds of different fields that you can kind of come from to then work in elections. The election administration field is fascinating. I would encourage anyone that is kind of figuring out what direction they're gonna go from a career or college perspective uh, or trades perspective to really look at this field. And by being an election judge or going and working in an office or even touring an office, you can see some of that. And we need awesome people to come into that field. And I, like can't say enough about my experience being an election official and now working on voting rights and voting access uh, the way that I have. So I, I think it's one of the best fields to go into and I would encourage all of your listeners to seriously look at it and consider it. Um, tell all your friends to vote, have the conversation. Like I, a lot of my friends will be like, Amber, all you do is talk about voting. I, yeah, and I ask, I ask my Lyft drivers, I ask people yeah. I engage with, like I, I do. I mean, I, I I think we have to live it. And I I often when I go to a new city, I'll ask the like Lyft driver, oh, did you vote? You know, or you know, and I kind of figure out a way. And I find it fascinating how people talk about this. So I, I would encourage all of you to to live it every day and figure out how to, you know, bring it in to those conversations. Yeah. Um, because you might come across someone who has not voted. And they might tell you why and they might vote again, right? So um, I think that one. And then I think, look, disruption is, and I've, I have disrupted a lot of things in my, in my career, um, but you don't have to tear it down to change it or disrupt it. And I think there's a, di there's a big difference. Like disruption can be healthy, change can be great, all of that. But there's also a point where the, the whole thing, the whole house doesn't get need to get torn down either. Um, and, and right now we're seeing some of this from January 6th and some of the aftermath and what have you of, of an extreme level of disruption where it was a tear it all down mentality. And so I think we have to kind of um, be very um, thoughtful about change and what that looks like and why, and is there a need to do it? And you know, you don't just change for change's sake. Um, you change to improve something, you change to make it better. And again, I think uh, we, we need to put voters first, put voters first. And that crosses all political 
you know, spectrums, all different dimensions, campaign finance, gerrymandering and, and independent redistricting, voting access, voting rights, all of it uh, needs to have a focus on putting voters first and putting the customer first and meeting people where they are in their everyday lives. And when we do that, I think we can certainly transcend a lot of this craziness um, that has occurred around the election process. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And you're not the only person to ask everybody have they voted i do that everywhere i go Good. <laughs> i love it especially and i'll encounter people who live in the districts and i'm working campaigns and then they haven't voted and i'm like you know i'm a little biased but i will make sure that they vote um a period um and and on that note um is is there a platform this is the only part of the show where you get to promote yourself uh so if you want to advertise your social media so people can sure. follow you um, I'll, I'll be sure to link everything. As well. Sure. Yeah. Um, so Twitter is at Amber McReynolds. Um, and then, uh, the book. So I did write a book last year. We're probably going to do a new version soon. Cause there's some things that change, but when women vote, um, we have a website, we also have uh, social media for that Instagram, um, and Twitter. So it's at when women vote and there's a little underscore, I think on the Twitter one. Um, and then, uh, I'm on Instagram. I'm also on Facebook. Um, I'm going to be launching uh, a website um, with all my projects and a lot of my work on it soon. Uh, so it's probably going to be ambermcgrenolds.com or amber.something, but that website will come soon. I'll link it on my social media, but uh, that will be a collection of kind of all the different initiatives and projects I'm working on and also my space to create and my space to invite people in to help me create and think about these things going forward. So I've got a lot of things in the works that I'm really excited about. Um, and I'm also probably going to be looking for people to help me with that um, uh, very soon. So uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, thank you for doing this podcast and having the space and conversation for people to come on uh, and, and giving your listeners, a, 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 you know, ideas for how we get better in the future. Of course. No. And thank you so much for your for your insight. Wish you the best of luck with all your future projects. You're working on a lot of great stuff. So anytime you want to come back on the show, touch upon them, get some awareness out feel free. The door is always open. Um, and, and I do appreciate your time, of course. Uh, and anytime my package ain't here, you know, you're, you're <laughs> getting an email. From me. Oh, that's uh, funny. A lot of people are doing that to me, by the way, since I got appointed, they're like, Oh, can you, if I have an issue, I'm like, well, I'll refer it to the appropriate team. <laughs> oh. no, no, uh, yeah. I'll leave you be, but no, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Take care. Have a good, good week. <laughs>